All right, welcome to Peeps Creek, the cafe where we serve you delightful, slightly intense, but definitely worthwhile conversations. A podcast focused on bringing people together by drinking, listening, and conversing. So grab your favorite drink and let's see what's on today's menu. All right, people, welcome to Peeps Creek, the cafe. You know, here at the cafe, we always have a conversation centered around the drink. And today I am drinking on Witch's Heart. <laughs> I changed it up once again, and I am doing a vodka-based drink, and I have it in this large cup, so you can't really see it, but it's purple. And then I have water, H2O, to, to hydrate the soul whenever I need. You know who I am, but just in case you don't, my name is Sean. And today, I am joined in the cafe by Denise. Say hello, Denise. How are you? I am good. Hi, how are you? I I'm feel like I need something on my lips. Like they're just pale. Yeah, I feel like you need something on that wall and some better lighting. But we'll talk about that later. But <laughs> what are you drinking on over there? I'm actually drinking on some Nightjar wine. Okay. Is that the same one from the last episode? It is. <laughs> okay. And also today, we are joined by another person. It is Umberto. Say hello, Umberto. Hello. Hello. And where are you waving from? I'm waving from my apartment in Portland, Oregon. All right. Now, you know, here we always have a conversation center around a drink. So what are you drinking on, young sire? Oh, well, I'm glad you asked. I am drinking uh, tamarind, spicy tamarind mango nada with some tamarind uh, Mexican candy. So maybe nice. a little fancy today. Okay. And matching with my outfit as well. Is that red or orange? Orange, right? Yeah, it's orange. And what's the alcohol base in that, sir? This is vodka. Mm, vodka. All right. All right. So I think this is the first time we've actually did an episode where three people were virtual. Like, because before it was always two people in one location and you somewhere else in these. If, if we don't include the book yeah reviews, not including the book club yeah i think so that's the first time so this is exciting we get to see the expansive nature of this virtual studio all right so we are back on true crime again we are episode 79 episode 79 is the fire that took her this is a situation that occurred in Columbus, Ohio, I believe. I know it was in Ohio. I know the trial was in Columbus. So I'm assuming because this in, was in Columbus courthouse that the issue occurred in Columbus, right? I don't know. I didn't even, they didn't, I don't think they even said that. They did not say it, it was just okay. my independent research. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was in Ohio. It was in Ohio. And so, for full disclaimer, this is a conversation that's centered around domestic violence. And so what I want to do is this was something that actually showed up at the very beginning of this documentary. It was about an hour and 40 minutes, maybe give or take. But the quote was, and I don't know who to attribute the quote to, but the name of the documentary is the same as this podcast episode, The Fire That Took Her. And it says, quote, domestic violence is an undeniable part of American culture landscape with one in four women experiencing everything from battery to torture to murder and beyond. And this is the story of the beyond. All right. So this happened on August the 2nd, 2015. 
and it involves two particular individuals, one by the name of Judith Ann Malinowski, who goes by Judy, and then a Michael Slager, that's S-L-A-G-E-R. But when you go through the episodes, they show Facebook messages. I don't know if either of you picked this up. But on the, set, on the Facebook messages, it said William Slager. So yeah, it said William M. So I think this Michael is his middle name. name. Yeah. That's why when you Google him, Michael Slager, it doesn't necessarily come up because Michael Slager mm. is this other murderer, a yeah. cop. That I comes saw up that. Cop. Yeah, right? Okay, <laughs> good. I'm glad we're on the same boat. All right. So go ahead, Denise. You kind of want to tell the people how it kind of starts. So it starts with the 911 call from someone that was actually that actually witnessed what was going on. And you know, it kills me every time we do these episodes and it's it has a 911 call because they're so frantic and the operators are always like, man, please come down. I can't hear you. And it's like, how? You know, like, don't ask me to come down when I just witnessed somebody put fire on somebody else. Like, I can't come down. Don't ask me to do that. But anywho, so it starts with the 911 phone call and the lady that is on the call states that a man... I can't remember exactly how it started, but she says that a guy sat next to the lady. He's still here and he poured gas over her and lit her on fire. Yeah. So, and it sounds like initially, first of all, to be fair, on this particular 911 call, I didn't understand what the hell the lady was saying. The first she was one. frantic. Just imagine yourself going through, witnessing something like yeah, that. Yeah, but ma'am, I need to get to the fucking location in order for me to get to the fucking location. Don't let me get Sean to... as the 911 operator. <laughs> I need to know what the fuck is going on. You know what I mean? But <laughs> And it seemed to be a bypasser. It wasn't anyone associated with Judy or Michael. But yes, so then it, it kind of comes back and then we kind of hear the full story of what the the 911 caller is basically saying. She says that a girl was sitting on the grass and then all of a sudden some guy came over and she was on fire, right? That's the snippet that we heard. And so apparently it was the allegation it was is that Michael, who was dating Judy at the time, Michael had poured gasoline on top of her and then lit her on fire, even though he says that didn't occur in that particular fashion. And this happened on the outside or behind a speedway. And for those of you who don't know what a speedway is, the gas station. So it's just ironic that he that the fire happened right behind the speedway. But then we meet another player who is the investigator. His name is Michael, is it? Oh no, Chad Cohagen. Is that his name, right? The investigator? Yes, yes Luke. Yeah. And Lead detective Chad Cohen. Did either of you thought it was, and this has not been funny, but either of you thought it was ironic that he received the call while he was at a barbecue? At a barbecue with his family, right? That's crazy. I know. I thought that. I was like, oh, wow. That's like, yeah, that's like really ironic. And then he got the phone call and he thought it was like, okay, why are we going here? It's just like some small fire. Yeah. And then so get sad. there and it's like totally different than what you really expect. And so you see some Im imagery of or video footage of the fire. But I don't know. I, I could not. Everything that the investigators were saying was occurring. I could not distinguish that. Either of you. So, so I. Hard. 
Well, you see, it was hard for me with the first time I watched it because I shared it with Sean. I was like, yeah, I couldn't see what they were seeing. But the second time that I watched it, I could see him. I could see her stepping away from him. I can see him going mm -hmm. towards her. I can see then the fire. You see the her lit on fire and her literally on the floor. Yeah. You could okay. see that the second time that I watched so it. I didn't gather that until the mother went to the police station and watched the video. And I thought I saw that, particularly the whole backing up thing away from him. And we're kind of jumping, but that's fine. We'll get to it. The whole backing away from I didn't see that until the portion where they show the mother going into the video. So so Judy is 31 at the time of this incident on August the 2nd, 2015. Her and Michael kind of for unless you all think differently, they kind of have a tumultuous relationship in the sense of they kind of started in a bad place for a bad reason. And it apparently it's clear they ended up in a bad place, but they began dating in April of 2015. And I think it sounds like they met on Facebook. I don't know. Did you all get some other perspective of how they met? No, I, to me, it seemed like that was how they met. Yeah. And so William at the time was 40. So nine years older than, than Judy. And they don't tell you this, but I, you have to do some research. He was 40. And so, yeah. So then the mother is introduced. And who is the mother? Umberto, do you remember the mother's name? I remember her name being Bonnie, but I don't know if she had a different name than that. Yeah. Bonnie. But yeah, Bonnie. So, Bonnie Bowles is the mother. And then she says that 20 minutes before the incident, she was just on the phone with Judy. They were having a conversation. And then around 20 minutes later that she received a phone call from the police basically saying that the two individuals, the two Ben Michael and Judy were on fire, got, are in the hospital because they caught on fire. And so she was initially frantic because she thought both of them were injured in some kind of freak accident, right? And it's weird because when she gets, she then gets a phone call while they are driving and the hospital is basically saying that they need to intubate Judy. And so that signaled to her that it was worse than what she thought because she paralleled that to the fact of her being on life support. She gets to the hospital. She doesn't immediately go to Judy's room because there's some confusion, but it's also ironic that the person she sees is who? Mike. Michael. Michael, yeah. Right. Does, it, does it seem to you guys that the mom was like still in a state of shock throughout the entire documentary? Yeah, it felt like she was definitely still processing. I feel like, yeah. I mean, and even she says it later in the documentary about like how this is kind of like traumatizing for the whole family, mm -hmm. including herself. She doesn't reference herself in that statement, but she talks about like the familial trauma that mm -hmm. this incident is like causing on all of them. And I feel like she's probably still healing from it. Yeah. And like talking about it and remembering like all those like emotions she was experiencing when she found out to the, through the whole process, probably still kind of like. Yeah. And you can tell that bit. it's affected them so much that to me, every time mm -hmm. she would come to the, you know, every time they would interview her and she would come to the TV, to me, it felt like she didn't believe this happened. Like, mm -hmm. how did this happen? You know, and every time she spoke, it was like 
she was still trying to process it, even with how many times, like Sean mentioned that he didn't see the stuff in the video until she went to the detective. Mm -hmm. Even then, I'm sure she's seen this video plenty of times. Mm -hmm. Her reactions looking at the video was still like if she was watching the video for the first time. Yeah, but I also felt like she was also not just processing that this happened to her daughter, but for me, it felt like she was also processing that Michael did it, that he actually did the act. Mm -hmm. Because even yeah. when she went to the hospital, I think when she went to the hospital, Michael kind of immediately went to this. It was an accident. It was an accident. And so she's basically saying to Michael, what do you mean it's an accident? And it sounds as if maybe some of the detectives who at that point had already watched the video because they said that they, the ATM that was pointed towards that particular area had caught the imagery of the incident, the video of the incident, and they had went into a room in a hospital and FaceTimed so that they can watch the video. So I think the officers at that point when the mother came on, they had already saw or came to the conclusion preliminarily that, in fact, Michael did it. So do you all want to kind of tell kind of what Michael's perspective of what happened? Because Judy couldn't talk at that point because she was intubated. Well, I guess I can say it. But she, <laughs> he, <laughs> he was basically saying, if I remember correctly, that he never got into an argument and he was just wanting, he, she threw a can of soda at him and ruined his clothes and that he poured gasoline on her to also ruin her clothes but that he did not intend to like burn her or like harm her in any way just wanted to get back at her for burning that for ruining his the, whatever he had on and then she then like you know fell onto the ground and was like apologizing and being like no don't leave don't leave and was like can you get me a cigarette and that he got her a cigarette got her a lighter and like lit it and then it accidentally just like lit up on fire, she lit up on fire, and that he did not intend to do that. And he did not think that he would get that hurt. And that's why he got the fire extinguisher and put her out. So that's the second story. Yes. But his first story was what? His first story. Do y'all remember? No. Mm -hmm, that she had filled the truck up with gas. And she got some gas on her as she had filled the truck up with gas. And so he went to lit up the cigarette because she was going to smoke. And because she had some gas spilled on her, she lit on fire. Okay. Now, let's assume for sake of argument that you heard that story for what you saw in the video. Would you believe that? I would. I mean, I could because I couldn't really tell what was happening mm -hmm. in the video. <laughs> until, the, until they described it, and I was like, oh, okay, that's what's going on. <laughs> but by just watching the video, I could probably believe that. Okay. And I... Without any other context. I would have believed it because I'm going to share a story with you guys. When I was pregnant with Davion, I went to a gas station and it was before work and I poured gas and I didn't realize, you know how the gas has the thing that's, that keeps the gas from, not that keeps the gas, but that allows the gas to continue to flow. Mm -hmm. So you don't have your hands on it. I had not realized that had by itself activated. And when I tried to take it out, all the gas poured on me. Mm. literally on me so basically what i hear you say is that you tried to do attempted murder on my unborn yes, child that's exactly what you just heard wow but listen i was so wow because my job was like no you have to come to work i went to work like that and as soon as i came through the door they were like 
oh, this thing's like gas. Like, <laughs> what is going on? And when I told them what happened, they sent me home. But I could believe because I was, what if yeah. I was a smoker? You know what I mean? And I would have thought that, oh, there's mm -hmm. nothing wrong with just, you know, I don't know. I, I think it, it's a possible story. All right. And so mm -hmm. as Umberto kind of took us to the situation, once the officer kind of uh, 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 confronted Michael and was basically saying, look, you told us that story. It don't really pan out. The video doesn't support that. So kind of tell us what happened because they, he basically then asked, am I under arrest? They basically say yes. So, and he asked, why am I under arrest? And he is under arrest at that particular point for felonious arson and aggravated assault. Right. And so that's when he gives the story that, that she threw pop in his face. And for those of you out there who don't know pop, cause that's what we call in Detroit. It is soda. Okay. Those people who live in Alabama, it is Coke. Okay. That's what they call every flavor of any soda Coke, but back home in Detroit, we called it pop. So she threw some pop in his face and it messed up his clothes. And the first, well, first of all, my first reaction to that was like, bro, I saw the way you dress. You dress shitty. Saw the outfit. <laughs> that was definitely a bum outfit. You worry about some pop on that. That, that was outfit. probably his best outfit. Yeah, okay. You don't know. <laughs> yeah, I ain't got to know. But <laughs> so he gets upset. And then because Umberto was trying to be too nice about it. He gets upset and he says, oh, bitch, you going to mess up my outfit? I'm going to mess up you. So then he goes, now, instead of just going to get some retaliatory soda, like a red pop, he goes around the, the car and pulls his gasoline and says, I'm going to fuck up your clothes and throws Vaseline on him. Now, what he then says is that after he did that, she was basically saying, don't leave, Papa, give me a cigarette. So he went back and gave her a cigarette. And as he lit the cigarette, she kind of went up a blaze, right? But can, can I ahead. mention two things? Yeah, I think that what set him off is that not only did she throw, he says that not only did she throw the pop at him, she spit in his face. Yeah, he did say that. And mm, we all right. know that. Well, I'm I'm not gonna say we all know, but to some people, that's an insult, you know, spitting in your face. And I think the other thing we didn't mention is that. He claims that he threw the gas on her, but because she took her sweater off, he didn't think it would be, it would cause any reaction because that's where the gas had gone to, the sweater. And by her not having the sweater on anymore, it was okay for him to light the cigarette. Well, that's what his lawyer says that he says, but Michael didn't say that in the hospital. Let's no, he clear. didn't say that in the hospital. Yes. But yeah, so that was the know, after we, we need effect. to mention that too. Yeah. That was the after effect, but yes. Yeah. Because that goes to the fact that why the lawyer is basically saying they can't prove attempted murder because Michael indicated that he saw the shirt off. And so since he assumed the shirt was off, he had no knowledge or intent to burn her because if he wanted to light her on fire, that he would have burnt the sweater, not her, not give her the cigarette. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, okay. So let's just assume for sake of argument, she did spit in his face. Okay. Why would you throw gasoline? Why would you go and get a big bucket of gasoline? What what of all things would make you walk around away from where you were? Because they were not in front of the vehicle right there. He had to actually physically walk to the vehicle. 
and walk around the vehicle, go behind in the truck, pull out a big black can of gasoline and bring it over there. So, and they got the lighter. And lighter, and lighter yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it makes it's asinine. It makes absolutely no sense what he was talking about. But okay, so <clears throat> that's kind of the story. And so she is burnt. Ninety five percent of her body is burnt. And they show some of the items that she was wearing, and it showed how the fire kind of just melted the items, and it almost looked like it melted some of it to her actual body that it was on because some of them they said it did they didn't have to cut off because of the way the fire went okay so and there was a witness who was there the male do you remember what the male said to the officer this is in regards to the fire extinguisher oh yeah that he's the one who actually got the fire extinguisher first and michael was just standing there and to him it seemed that because he saw the guy coming with the fire extinguisher, that's when he felt like he needed to go and get one. He been Michael. Right. Yeah, that's when Michael went to Captain save a person and try to go find the extinguisher to extinguish her out. But go ahead. I was just going to say, because if you guys remember from the first lady, she said that he sat next to her while she was on fire. She did say that. But... Did she say on fire or after he threw the gasoline on her? Because I thought it was after he... I think he said on fire. Yeah, I think she said on fire. And then all the 911 calls, they all said he's still there. He's still there. Like uh, That might be right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, might be right. So it could just be... I mean, what if his argument is, is that he was just in shock and he couldn't move? He didn't know what to do. Let me throw some gas on you. See how shocked you're going to be, sir. <laughs> you throw some gas on me. First of all, you throw some gas on me. I'm running straight to you so I can burn your motherfucking ass. Not up right you. There. I'm saying Michael. If, oh. he, if he dares to say that he was in shock and that's why he didn't move, well, sir, let me throw some gas at you and see. Okay. So let's kind of talk about their relationship. So they met on Facebook and there's allegations. Well, Judy admitted to being addicted to heroin. Am I saying that word correctly? I always fuck it up. Because it stemmed from her she, in 2013. She had a surgery. Be, it was either 2013 or something. She had a surgery for ovarian cancer. And there were some complications as a result of that that caused her to have to receive oxycodone and Percocet to deal with the pain. And so she indicates that she had contacted her mama. And this is the mother speaking. That, that Judy contacted her and was basically like, Mom, I'm getting addicted to these pills. And the mom's, and it almost felt like the mom was feeling guilty about the addiction, the overall addiction mm-hmm. to other things. But the mom was basically saying, look, they're giving you this for a reason. Just take the prescribed amounts and you should be fine. But what happens is, according to, and we hear this from Judy's mouth later, and we'll talk about when she actually comes out of it and begin talking. But she had lost her insurance. And because she lost her insurance, she needs to find some way to get kind of the medicine that she was using for her pain to balance the pain that she was receiving. And I, it sounded like she was at one point getting oxycodone on the black market, like off the streets. And then Michael is the one who introduced her to heroin. Did you all see that differently or am I misstepping there? No, I think that's yeah, what I heard too. Okay. But what was striking to me is that when I heard that, I initially thought they both were drug addicts. But 
the sister seems to think differently, right? The sister had the perspective that Micah was never on drugs. What do you all think about that? That he, if, if, if in fact he wasn't on drugs, but he's the one supplying her the drugs. What do you think about that dynamic? I mean, I, I believe it. I mean, it didn't seem like he was like addicted to anything and even being at the hospital, like it was, he wasn't like going through some sort of like relapse or, you know, like his body wasn't fighting the sobriety that he was experiencing while he was there or like apparent, you know, what we saw, the footage that we saw. And I feel like, you know, just understanding like abusive relationships, he wanted to have control and his one way that he was having control over her was by him being the drug dealer and giving her the drugs and having her being dependent on him to get those drugs to satisfy her addiction. But why don't you think he was doing that out of love because she was in pain? Because why would you give someone you love drugs? Because she, because she doesn't have insurance to get the oxycodone. So Listen, if a- he loved her, he wouldn't have set her on fire. Next. <laughs> <laughs> He wouldn't have poured you know gasoline. I mean? He like, wouldn't have given her drugs. But I think he wouldn't have hit her. I, wait, did he never hit her? Right? Yes. yes there's allegations. She had marks in her face, and the sister says that he. Oh choked. right, he did. Yeah. Hit her, yeah. Now, okay, so can we talk a little bit about the mom's dynamic with Michael? What did you all think about that? I honestly felt something. I felt I had sympathy for the mother, but I also was like in my head attacking her because I'm like, bitch. Why are you like being friends with this motherfucker? He's already been accused of choking your daughter. You know that your daughter is on drugs, even though he's telling you that she's stealing the money and doing X, Y, and Z. Why are you believing him? Like, I don't know. I got kind of angry. Exactly. Let's go. Listen, I don't know if I think I only felt sympathetic with the mother as she's telling the story because I can still see that it's affecting her. But other than that, Mm-hmm. My feelings towards the mom was rage. I wanted to just, if I could go through that TV and just punch her, I would. But we could go into that later. But I will say that. No, I but think why? Because I don't like the way she speaks to the oldest daughter. I don't think she has compassion enough for the situation the girls are going through. I think that she's mm-hmm. not sympathetic. I think that she's very, like, confrontational with her. Oh, I could go on. But to answer your question, she didn't like him. She didn't like him from the beginning. And she didn't even want the girls around him. I think the fact that Judy must have told him how the mother felt. And he came then to the house to, I would say, confront the mother and say, just because I have tattoos and I look the way that I look doesn't mean that I'm a bad guy. And if you're Christian or whatever, you can't judge me. I think that is probably what softened her and made her then be the way she was towards him. When she said that, when did she say mm-hmm. that? Yeah, she said that in the, when that she, when they were describing how he first came into Judy's life. She was talking about how she didn't like him. And then he did that. And she was like, oh, right. Maybe I should check myself before I judge this yep. man. Okay. okay. But then eventually there's those like text exchanges where she's like, get away from my daughter, like leave her alone. And he's like, nope. so you can see that she changes. Yeah. Okay. And so for those of you out there, this is kind of, this is the guy, William Michael Slager. <clears throat> and so as you can see, he has tattoos up through his neck and all 
without the shirt and all on his sleeves and all of that. Okay. Okay, but here's what I think that... Okay, so he went and confronted her because I felt like this documentary shows so many facets of dealing with grief, dealing with issues. And I also felt like this is a situation where I think religion got in the way of reasonableness, right? Because in that particular aspect, it it appears as if Bonnie is super religious, right? At least that's that's what I gather. She gave me religious Mm -hmm. energy. And the reality is that there were telltale signs that he was not good for your daughter. And the fact that he came and confront you was not out of love, but it was out of disrespect. And because you are basically saying that I need not to judge a person, that's allowing your religion to like go out of what a reasonable person would do, particularly when you know that your daughter has an addiction. Because at that particular point, she knew that the daughter had an addiction because the reality is, is that both daughters, Judy had two kids. They were not living with Judy at that time. The youngest was living mm-hmm. with the grandma. No, the youngest was living with the sister and the oldest was living with the grandmother. So you know, or you knew at that particular point that there were some issues and the fact that you allowed this dude who you already had issues with or had concerns with to make you kind of turn that leaf. To me, I felt like it was her religion kind of pushing her in the wrong way in that perspective because I don't think I would do that. I don't know if you all think thought differently about that. Um. I mean, I agree. Yeah. I just feel like like abusers can be very um, charismatic. Like they know how to be charming. They know how to like get what they want. They can be very manipulative. And so that's just another sign of manipulation, which is another red flag, you know, like, oh, he's able to like manipulate my perspective based on this. Like he knows how to get me. And so that should have been a red flag. But it's also like, I can believe that it could work because she was very religious and so I, I feel bad for Bonnie. I feel like I could see her pain as she was like telling this story. And so I felt very, I felt sorry for her. I also did feel rage because, you know, like, how do you, like knowing all the things that you both said, like, how do you still allow that to happen? But at the same time, it's like, Judy was a grown woman. Like she was an adult. Like, what is she going to do also at that point? Like, how do you stop this relationship from happening when, I don't know. Yeah, this incident was just like really messy. Yeah. It's just impacting everybody in different ways. Yeah. It was uh, very intense. Yeah. Okay. And so ultimately, he is taken to court and he pleads guilty to aggravated assault and felonious arson, right? He pled guilty to both of those, didn't he? So pleading no contest is pleading no, guilty? No. So what no contest means is that it's not admitting guilt is not saying I'm innocent. What it's saying is I see the evidence that you have against me and that based upon the evidence that you have against me, I believe that it's sufficient evidence by which a jury may say that I'm guilty. And so instead of me saying that I'm guilty, because ultimately people do this because A, they don't want to say they're guilty or they got a chip on their shoulder, but there is enough evidence to say, listen, I get it. I might be convicted of it. And I might receive a more serious charge. I mean, serious sentence. So therefore, let me just do no contest as part of this plea deal. 
right? And so the person, the d- defendant at that particular time gets to walk away with their dignity of not saying that I pled guilty, but also the prosecution at that point gets to have some kind of conviction. But the problem with that is that it was infuriating to many people, and particularly the family, because the sentence was what? 11 years. 11 years, and that's the max, right? And remember what the judge said. What did the judge say when she was sentencing him? All I wrote was, take him out, because she was mad. (laughs) (laughs) When Judge Joyce, was that her name? The girl, the lady. Yeah, she... Yeah. Do you remember... She wanted him to... Go ahead. Yeah, she was dragging him. She was like, you're a monster. You're trash. You're despicable. She's like, I blame legislators for not being able to sentence you a little bit more yeah. or like to the max extreme or whatever. Yeah. So she wanted she to said, do more than I that. Liked her. I saw your charges. I saw your, your yeah. record or something. Your record. <laughs> and let's talk about that. What's his record? A lot. I didn't write them down because there were so many that I was like. <laughs> it was like 31 yes. different things. And it. I And domestic, including domestic yeah, violence. Yeah. So he had like abuse. 31 different run-ins with the law. And I don't know if they all were convictions. And I was trying to pull it up. But now it just dawned on me why I couldn't find it because his middle name is Michael, not the first name. But he was a sex offender. He had breaking and entering. He had theft. He had aggravated assault. He had other domestic violence charges. He had sexual battery. He had child endangerment, stalking and rape. And I wonder, do you all think Judy knew these things or not? I personally, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that in the, what is it, frame of mind that she was in when she met him, mm-hmm. she's not thinking, do you have any charges? You know, like, let's have a conversation and see what charges do you have on you? I don't think she was even thinking of that. Mm-hmm. So you all, when you all meet people, you don't like Google them to see if they're a sex offender or stuff? It, or there's like... a difference. Remember, we are not in the position that she was in when she no, met No, no, I'm at, this has yeah. nothing to do with her. I'm asking y'all, do y'all? I, you know... Not to check if they're on the same. Oh, I, no, like... oh, I, I check. <laughs> <laughs> I do all kind of Google and check to make sure. Like you, yeah, I do. Yes, but I agree. Well, I mean, I feel like we're also like more or less rational people. Where exactly, you know, we could probably gauge who we're talking to and make a safe assessment. And then if there's red flags, you can do any sort right. of googling that's needed. But she wasn't in that clear of mind. I think she was very much survival mode, trying to just get the next. The next drug, the next hit to make her feel okay, good. Okay, but I'm gonna and push that. This I'm, man I'm gave it push to that rational thinking thought a little further because remember the guy Jared Kogel, the guy, the Subway guy, who lost all that weight by eating Subway sandwiches. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And he went to jail for child prostitution yeah. and wanting to deal with all these kids. And he was married and his wife had no idea he had two kids and she thought she was rationally getting mm-hmm. to a great relationship. The point of that is, and everyone thought he was such a beautiful human being. I bring that up because I also mm-hmm. watched that documentary today. And I think that's a good documentary to talk about. <laughs> but it was the reality of how he fooled people yeah. for mm-hmm. 20 plus years, right? Now, I'm saying, look at this dude. I Not to put... Not to judge on the not to judge, but I'm judging him. Okay, I saw him immediately. I was like, "Oh my god, is he a biker gang? What is going on? Like what?" (laughs) Like I'm googling his motherfucking name as soon as I saw him walk through the door. But yes, okay. But go ahead. Sorry, I was. I mean, I will say this though. 
to some women, there's a sexy appeal to that. You know, the bad boy image, the having all the tattoos, that biker appearance of being a biker gang guy, you know. So in a way, I could see where she may have been attracted to him, you know. Yeah, okay. All right. <laughs> so at some point, we hear from the prosecution, and I thought that this was very sad part, is that the before they even got the no contest plea from Michael, do you remember what the prosecutor said? Is it that they basically were waiting for her to die? Exactly. So they didn't initially take him oh, to yeah. court on those other charges, the aggravated assault, the felonious arson, because they were kind of in this holding pattern because they were waiting for her to die. And then we hear from the nurse who basically says that she treated, treated people with burns even less than Judy because Judy had 95% of her body burned. And those people lasted only a few days. And she did that mortality. What is it? Yeah, the mortality the calculation. Equation. Yeah, equation for equation. mortality. And do y'all know? Do y'all remember what that was? What what it ended up being? Yeah, she the. Oh, there? sorry, you can go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> See, this is what we were trying to avoid earlier. <laughs> no, but that's the beauty because when you out drinking, most people over talk each other. Anyway. Oh, that go is ahead. funny. She did say that in the burn world, they have this equation and it's based on the person's age and the percent that they are burned. So with her being 31 years old and the nurse actually said 80%, up to 80% of, of burn in her body, it was 110% of mortality. Right. And so the expectation was that she was going to expire sooner than she, she did. did. Yeah. All right. And so... As they were waiting, and the only reason that they actually went ahead and charged the guy is because as they were waiting for months for her to pass away, as sad as that sound and as grim as that sound, she woke up. She came out of it. And because she came out of it, the expectation was is that she was going to survive. And so they went ahead and charged him with that. All right. So we also hear a little bit about the victim found. What did you all think about that situation? Crazy. Yes. Okay, so Umberto, since it was fucked up, tell the people what, what makes it fucked up. <laughs> I apologize. Am I allowed to yes, curse here? Yes, I curse all the fucking time. Okay. All the time. <laughs> well, that's fucked up. Are you talking about the victim's assistance yes. funds or whatever? Yes. Okay, yeah. It's just fucked up system. And I mean, I feel like this case just highlighted the way that the justice system is fucked up to really like serve true meet like impactful justice for especially like the victims of domestic abuse and in this case the victim's uh, assistance wouldn't pay the medical bills for judy because she was at the time of the incident she heard they detected that she was abusing drugs in her body and they were just like we can't do it the law is the law we're not going to pay for any of the the things that she has to pay for now. And so yeah. it was just messed up and that they had to do that. And so it appeared as if uh, you used the word abusing, but I just want to make a correction. We don't know whether or not that was the determination. What the mother said was, is because she had substances in her system. All oh, right. Because I don't want to shame the victim, 
because she has substances in her system, the way the law was set up is that if there are such substances in the system, that they would not mm -hmm. be able to pay out anything related to her, even though she's a victim of a crime in this particular case. Which, yeah, as you said, impactful justice is important. And this is an example of non-impactful justice because a fund that's set up to help individuals, victims of crimes, for various types of crimes and for various reasons could not help this individual who obviously didn't have the wherewithal to get up and do anything about her situation, given the amount of burns that she experienced as a result of the fire. Okay. So when she does wake up and she starts talking, Judy is very emotional about the fact that he only gets 11 years, but the... Did you do you remember what the prosecutor said when he told her that he was in jail? Her reaction wasn't she sad? Yeah, she was sad. Yeah. She was hurt oh, yeah. that he was in jail, and here she is suffering, and she's more concerned about the fact that he's suffering in the sense of being in the jail, and that could be the the continued abuse cycle, right, of someone with power. But I also think that speaks to the humanity that she had within her because it appeared as if she had some kind of religious perspective because we'll talk about it. But when she talks about the events on August the 2nd, she talks about her prayer to the Lord, right? And I'm not saying that just because you pray to the Lord, you're religious, but I do think there are some religious aspects to her that motivated her to respond in the way that she did. But she was also upset because he was not remorseful for what he did, right? Which is part of the issue with no contest pleas, right? It's not an individual accepting responsibility for what they did. It's basically them being, in most cases, them refusing to say I'm guilty, even though everybody in the world know they're fucking guilty, right? Mm -hmm. And so what does she do? What was kind of her reaction of getting back at the fact that he only can do 11 years? <laughs> Wasn't Ooh. it when she wanted to say her story? Ooh, y'all did y'all watch the same episode? I mean, you be asking questions that is like, what? We didn't write that. <laughs> <laughs> she started in the bed communicating with the legislators to pass Judy's law oh, so that okay. individuals oh. of um <laughs> of victims of domestic violence and in such cases hers. The individual, particularly with aggravated assault, the maximum can go between five and 20 versus the maximum being 11 years. And she was doing video um, messages to legislators in a burnt up state, a uh, painful state and things of that nature. Do you remember that now? Yeah. Jeez. I remember her also having conversations with other victims. I don't know if you guys saw in one. Oh, I didn't see that. Another. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I keep doing yeah. like this because watching those videos oh it's so painful like so heartbreaking oh yeah and you can tell like the pain oh is just God, like never yes. ending like it's just like the act of just like laying down is just like painful to her yeah. and just yeah her testimony was just really yeah. bad yeah. and when they woke up for those of you who will watch the documentary and i highly recommend it you will see that when she gets up they just the fact that them trying to change the dressings is overly painful because it sticks to her body as they were being unwrapped and they had to adjust the wrappings. And quite frankly, she just doesn't look like a person in reality. Like, and I thought it was very sad what the daughter said. And 
even mm-hmm. though they mentioned the daughter's name, I'm not going to mention it because she's still young. But the young daughter, she said, what did she say? She thought she was going to go in because she thought the the burns were like what? Like cigarette, yeah. like cigarette burns, burns yeah. or something, like just like small yeah. ones. Um, yeah, and I think the older one said she didn't even recognize she, her. The, yeah, the daughter. And what about the sister when she went in? Started I know, she almost passed out. Like, yeah, just from yeah. from viewing her. Um, and I mean, that's the thing about like the going back to like the familial trauma is that they had like like they had this person that they loved and cared about so much. Like seeing them go through this pain for like two years that she oh. stayed alive, and they weren't even able to like. First of all, they like saw her, couldn't help her. And they also weren't able to like embrace her and just like show like physical affection, yeah. especially for the kids. Like that must have been really yeah. hard for all. Well, the thought, brother, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Do you guys remember what the brother said the first time he saw her after it happened? Yeah, he oh, didn't yeah. want to hug her because he he thought it was going to hurt. But <laughs> and and that stayed with him because he didn't get a chance to hug her before oh, I'm she passed start away. Crying. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But I thought Danielle said it the best, and Danielle is the sister, but she basically says that the entire, that situation has caused PTSD for the entire family to the point that mm-hmm. every individual remembers, identifies differently about the situation and their interactions in that. And that goes to your whole point, Umberto, when you were talking about the familial trauma, trauma. And I think the grandmother, who's the mother, also mentioned something similar to that. But it was just, it's, it's weird that they all, and you can see in their faces, even in the way that they were talking, just how they navigate through the conversation, the differences of how they approach the situation. Yeah. Um, okay. So we, we get to a point where um, it becomes clear at some point that Judy may not make it as long as people anticipate. And so there was a lot of discussion from the prosecution side, strategy rise about what is the best way of dealing with if she dies to secure a murder verdict against Michael Slager. And what was their choice or what did they decide to do? To video, to do a deposition with her, the video. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. And so this is just a teaching moment, people. <laughs> so for federal, particularly under the federal rules of, ev- of civil procedure, there's a rule of procedure that's called Rule 27 in Ohio. Actually, is, you need a refill? I think so. <laughs> this episode's going long. <laughs> so you're so ignorant because the, you know what the problem is? That he does the same noises, but, but you can't say nothing to him. And then if you make the noise, also- he wants to point it out. Like... And isn't this the whole situation? Isn't this a bar? Right. Uh, Hello. Yes, you should get a refill. <laughs> you can. Nah, I'm Are good. you sure? <laughs> yeah. All right. Are you sure? Carry on. What were we talking? Go get a refill. <laughs> nah, I'm good. Tell what was happening. All right. So. Under the rules of civil procedure, Rule 27, um, Ohio has a similar rule. But what that does is that that allows you to perpetuate testimony. And so basically what that is is that you have to get some kind of order from a court that allows you to obtain testimony from an individual who is expected to expire or presumed to be in a state where they are going to be incapacitated and unable to attend trial. 
And so in order to use that typically in a later proceeding, right, you need to make sure that the individual has the ability to confront the witness, right? Because under the criminal law, a defendant has the right to defend or confront their accusers. And in this particular case, the accuser would have been Judy. And so they decided that they were going to do a deposition, a recorded deposition of her. What did Michael say he wanted to do as a result of that? Wanted to be in the hospital room. And what else did he want to do? He wanted to cross-examine her. Oh, my God, I was so mad. <laughs> like, mother effer. Oh. All right. And but there's a reason why he said that. And why? Because he says that had he been in the room, she wouldn't have lied. Like, for, no, first he wanted, wait, hold on. He wanted to be there. He wanted to see her testify. He wanted her to see that he was there because his belief was that she wouldn't lie if he was there. Yeah, but that was just mm-hmm. him been using his power exactly, of Exactly, trying to be controlled like Umberto mentioned earlier, having that, wanting to have that power over her. Oh. Yeah, but fuck mm-hmm. him. Not Umberto, Michael. Okay, but that leads to another thing. When he pled no contest, the only reason he pled no contest was what? Why? Do you remember? Well, on the first one, he pled no contest in order for her not to testify. Exactly. And why? Mm -hmm. Why? Because if she later on died, her testimony, since it was under oath, would be admissible in his murder trial. Right. And not just under oath, but subject to cross-examination, which is a key part because he will have the ability to confront her. So anyhow, they decide to do this. See, I'm teaching y'all something. Y'all should be learning something here. Umberto, you should be taking vigorous notes right now. Actually, I think... I, I think that. we learned from the documentary because all this was mentioned in the nah, documentary. Nah, y'all don't know nothing about the Rule 27, how it works, why it worked, and all that. They mentioned, they mentioned no, that there was no rule Because if, if they did, if they did, you would have repeated it. Thank you. Sir, Move go back and listen to it. He didn't I heard him. I know that. Okay. No. <laughs> listen. Okay. So we do the de- <laughs> deposition, but in order for her to participate, what did they have to do? Bring her off of her meds. Oh, um, we yeah. her off all her pain medication. <laughs> and that was a very so painful thing to watch because you saw her in pain. She was literally crying out, saying how much it hurts. And anyhow, we'll, you can go and watch all that. So we skip to the part where we get to the deposition. And the lawyer, her lawyer asked the, well, not her lawyer, the prosecution asked her questions about what happened. And she's very clear on the events that mm-hmm. occurred on Wait, August. but even before the lawyer asked her, though, let's not skip when the lady did her oath and then the defense attorney immediately objected. <laughs> well, and he should have. He did the right thing. He's yeah. basically preserving his objection because he doesn't agree with the fact that the judge allowed this deposition. Mm-hmm. But yes, and so what did she say was kind of what happened on her view on August the 2nd, Umberto? Do you remember? What was- I don't remember the details, mm-hmm. but I mean, she just described like him just, I mean, we kind of already talked about it, but the thing that stood out to me in her recollection of it was just how he was just like really angry and how she saw his eyes go black when he was like pouring this gasoline on her and then lighting her on fire. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, I mean, just like the fact that she just remembers that so vividly of what happened like August 5th. And yeah, 
that's what I recall from her recollection. Of yeah. That situation. And then he, she says that he was not responded to her cries for help. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the whole pop situation, he basically was saying, Oh, you want to pour pop on me? See how you like this bitch. And he then goes to the car, pulls the gasoline, pours it on her. And what she says is that not only did he pour it all over her, but he poured it into her mouth. And she emphasized how that had a burning sensation in her throat, yeah. which I thought was very powerful for her to remember and recollect those events. And then she goes on cross-examination, and the lawyer thought he was getting somewhere by trying to say she didn't remember. <laughs> you want to talk about that, Denise? I only laugh because he really tried. You know, you got to give it to him. He tried yeah. to make it seem like the trauma that you've been through doesn't allow you to recollect certain things because he started asking her, do you remember the clothes that you have on? Mm -hmm. Do you remember getting dressed? Do you remember where you had drugs? And she, she told him, she's like, sir, I've been through so much. You know, I don't remember those minor details. I remember what happened, but I don't remember the little things. And it's like, he was trying to talk, but she was over talking him. And it was almost like he gave up. He's like, whatever, I'm not even going to ask no more. And you know what was the most, I thought, was the most powerful part of her testimony on cross was when he said, when she said to him, I can't remember all that, but I remember him setting me on fire. And that was the most painful mm-hmm. event I ever been through. Something of that oh, nature, yeah. right? And that just encapsulated the fact of that she, you know, if a jury were to hear that, I think a jury would be either dumb not to say that he actually you know, mm-hmm. committed the crime. And she also punched back when he was trying to make her out to be a drug addict because she basically said, yeah, bitch, basically. I, she didn't say bitch. Yeah. But yeah, bitch. Yeah. It was Michael who gave it to me, motherfucker. Yeah. You check with your client before you come for me. And I thought she did an excellent job. Yeah, even me through the too. Pain, yep, even I through agree. The pain yeah, yeah. So ultimately, Michael is um, charged with murder because she passes away shortly after her deposition, a few months after, I think like three or four or somewhere between three and five months, she passes away. And I don't know, what do you all think about this? The sister said that she thought her mother was being selfish by keeping her this long. What was your thought on that? I mean, I feel like, I yeah, I see both. I mean, this, where she's coming from, I feel like definitely I'm sure that the mom was like not wanting to let her go. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of hard to be in that situation where like you see someone that you love so much go through so much pain, but also not wanting to let them go because they're still like, you know, they're still alive. And so I do see her being to some degree like selfish, but I'm sure that Judy was, you know, also like willing to fight as she talked about like wanting to pass Judy's law, which and I know we'll get to, but like that. I think it's a little more complicated than just saying the mom was selfish. Denise, anything on that? No, I agree. I think that as parents, we want to be selfish because we don't want to see our kids pass away. So yeah, she probably held on to her more than she should have. But I also think that Judy had a determination and she was set in mm-hmm. accomplishing it too. So I could see yeah. either either way. And I think the nurse said it best for me or encapsulated it best for me where she basically said that Judy had a spirit that wanted to live, but a Mm -hmm. body that couldn't basically keep up. Right. And I thought that 
encapsulated that because she lived about two years after the burn. Yeah. Right. Almost two years because she died on J- July 27, 20, 2017. And sh- the burns happened. I mean, the fire, the incident happened on August the 2nd. What about where they wanted to, before he took the plea, where they, because he was dead set on going to trial, right? Michael, he wanted to go to trial for the mm-hmm. murder. So the end, he didn't want to admit fault. Like right, exactly. But what do you all think about the conversation where they were talking about death, the death penalty, and putting the plea on the table between the the mom, the kids? That conversation. Do you remember that? What do you all think about it? Yeah, that was hard. I mean, the I feel like they were putting this like death penalty conversation and just this conversation in general on like these kids to like have to navigate, which is like, as someone who's not a parent, like I can understand how that's just like really difficult to even have, like have be experienced that with your child or with a grandchild. And then to have to like navigate through that, it just does not seem like an easy conversation to have. And this child being like, he deserves the death penalty or like that. <laughs> like, that's just like, I'm like, damn girl. <laughs> she did, she basically. But yeah. also like. Go ahead. Yeah, I don't know, that's hard. No, the the it little was, girl said, if Michael had the guts to do what he did to Judy, then the same should occur to him. That was a young one. Yeah. They have a uh, lot of rage in them, you know, a lot of anger. Yeah. But And you saw the religion side exactly. of the lady also being like, you got to let God, like, you know, forgive. And that's hard to have that conversation where you see, like, your mom just, like, being burnt and laying on a hospital bed and you see this other person like not getting the punishment that you think he deserves because of that yeah and the oldest daughter i don't even know how old she was but the oldest daughter's perspective i thought resonated with me and i think that's the probably how i would think about it because i i have a love hate relationship with the death penalty i definitely don't think it should be completely banned but i think it should be used sparingly but in this particular case what the daughter said was look this motherfucker's been in jail all essentially all his life. Being in jail is a reward for him, and he's not going to learn anything from that, which I thought was a powerful statement and her position that she felt that the death penalty was something that should have been on the table versus this plea deal. But yeah, like Bertha was saying, is that the grandmother kind of had this like religious religious response that, you know, let God take care of it and blah, blah, blah. Denise, you want to say something about that? I do, because I felt that the whole conversation was unnecessary. Because you have a video of Judy stating exactly what she wants to happen if he's ever charged with murder. So why are you exposing these kids? Why are you even bringing this conversation up to the kids and exposing them or making them give you their opinion if at the end of the day you already knew what your daughter wanted? And you already knew that it wasn't going to be the death penalty. Yeah, but see, I saw that. And again, we're looking at a a video, a documentary that's edited for purposes of the show. But fundamentally, what we don't hear is whether or not the question was asked. If we were to place him a death penalty, would you support that or oppose that? We don't know that. We could have. She just wanted something to happen to him. Who, Judy, you mean? Right, because we don't hear the question that was asked to Judy to to solicit that answer. 
Because remember, if we parallel that to why she fought for Judy's law, it was because she thought 11 years was too short, right? And so from that, I gathered that was part of kind of the motivation to keep him there for this to, for life. But I'm not sure that necessarily indicated that she felt one way or the other about the death penalty because we didn't hear the actual question is what I'm saying. He did. He asked her if he, he said, what do you want to happen? He didn't say that we're seeking a death penalty. How would you no, feel no, no. about he that? He didn't say it that way, but he did say if he gets charged with murder, what would you like to happen? No, I get that. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying, I feel like he left it open ended enough where if she wanted that, that penalty, she would have exactly. Said, That's... And she went with, like, no, I want him to be like exactly. That's what okay, I'm saying. Wait. Like, people, people, listen, you have to respect our opinions. <laughs> like, I honestly feel I get what you're saying, I completely understand what you're saying, but I also think that the mom had a lot to do in influencing a lot of the things that Judy did. and. I don't think you can sit and say that her and her mom did not have conversations at length talking about Uh, if he ever gets charged with murder, you know, and he gets death penalty, this and that. I, my opinion is I do not feel they, they should have subjected these two little girls to have that conversation Mm -hmm. about death penalty or life in prison. You should have just said, this is possibly what he's going to get. And that's it. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't agree. disagree with that. I'm not even talking about the kids. I agree wholeheartedly. But the question becomes, I do, the question really is, were any of the kids age appropriate? And I don't think there's a, fi- yeah. a, 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 a black leather that at yeah. this age, you're age appropriate. It sounds to me that both of them navigated the uncomfortable conversations more effectively, I think that I would at their age, if I was at their age. Mm -hmm. And so it leads me to believe that they had enough information within themselves to have that, that uncomfortable conversation. What I was bringing up is that the judges, excuse me, the lawyer, the defense lawyer was basically trying to say that Judy spoke what she wanted. And what I'm saying is, that's not really fair because we don't know what the question was. I'm not talking about the kids. So we were just on two different wavelengths on that. I agree with you all. But I thought we did hear him. I thought we did hear him ask the question. He said, what, what punishment would you yes, want Yes, but him? from a legal perspective, I'm saying from a legal perspective, that's not a sufficient question to say that she ruled out the death penalty. Um, How would you have asked it to get a more to get the response that you feel like would have really reflected her. In, Ohi- in Ohio for murder, the penalty is death or life in prison. We are going to seek the death penalty. How do you feel about that? That would get me to realize that was really her wish- wishes. Because if I was the prosecution, you know, at the end of the day, they can consider what the family wants, but they don't have to agree with it. And if he really wanted to push the trial the way he did, and to me, he really did, I would have said, fuck that, we're going for the death penalty, period. Point blank, period, the end. That's the way I would have done it, right? And I would have said, my argument would be, is that this does not foreclose the victim's desire for the death penalty or disdain for the death penalty is what I'm saying. Does that make sense? Yes, Sean, it does. 
Y'all just some haters, boy. Every time. No, I but I do want to mention about the age appropriate thing because I think that I don't my know. Allergies. I, I felt like the grandma. I don't know why I feel like she almost attacks the oldest daughter. Like I don't like how she kept telling her, "You don't know. You don't have coping skills. You don't understand what your mom had to go." Yeah, she don't understand. She's young. Why, why would you even tell her that? She's not going to understand what her mom had to go through having two kids at a young yeah. age. You know, like, I don't know. I, I just, for some reason, it didn't sit well with me the way she treats that the oldest daughter of Judy. And in a way, I feel like the anger that the daughter has is because she can't express herself. Mm -hmm. Like, she can't be honest with how she really feels because she's attacked if she does. That's just my opinion. Yeah, I felt like I feel like Bonnie needed some facilitation training right. to how to just really handle this whole trauma that these kids were going through. So Bonnie, you're out there. Let me yeah. know. Yeah, and, and you know, it's crazy. That, it's <laughs> funny that you say that because that's exactly what I was thinking. If there's somebody that watches yeah. this and has that professional license, you know, to be able to offer them help, I think this family truly needs some help. Like, yeah. Well, I feel like she also, she herself, you know, like they were all just going through yes. it together. And so she was in her feelings, like she was going through it. So I don't like totally disregard, right. I don't want to totally disregard her feelings in those conversations because she was going through that same yeah. trauma. But I think as an adult, you also have to remember that these are like exactly. kids who don't have the same uh, brain development to be able to handle these difficult conversations and this similar trauma that you're experiencing, but in a different way. So I just feel like she needed a little bit more understanding, a little bit more care handling those conversations. But yeah, I don't know. She, they were going through it. Yeah. I'll keep my comments to myself. So I won't, oh get, my Lord. So, so I won't get attacked on my own platform. You won't get attacked. But how do you feel about the way she treated you know, not treated, but how she would approach the conversations with the oldest grandkid. I mean, here's how I'm going to say it. I didn't like it, but I understand it because it's, it's, yeah. it's easier. It's easy for us to sit back as Monday morning coach trying to tell her how she should have navigated this. But this was real time and navigating through yeah. the concept of the grief of losing her daughter the grief of not being able to protect her daughter from getting to that point. And when her daughter got to that point, there was nothing she could do to comfort her daughter, right? And coupled with the fact that I think she feels remorse or guilty for mm -hmm. her being even with Michael because if she was not addicted to any kind of drugs or anything like that, maybe Michael would not be in the picture, even though Michael is not on drugs or didn't use drugs, right? But also... Mm -hmm. The kids are navigating with the anger of being left out of the conversation because this is their mother. They should have been informed about what was going on. Like, you know, was she getting treatment, this, that, and the third? But I agree that the grandmother appeared to lash out at the older daughter. But I think there are some dynamics there where those two kind of clash about mm -hmm. the whole situation. So I would say that I do think that it's going to be it's necessary for them to have 
therapy as a family, but individually as well, so that they can figure yeah. out their coping mechanisms, and then they can come together to figure out how they can heal, or at least not even heal, but at least kind of navigate the situation as a core group. This is how I would look at it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but I also I think agree. I mean I I think it's important for me to say I admire the kids' tenacity. I admire the yeah. way that they navigated through the uncomfortable conversations and dealing with the fact that they lost a parent, but also dealing with the traumatic way in which they lost a parent. And I thought that they handled it with grace and maturity that I don't think I would be able to do at their age. And so, yeah. And they even were advocates for the Judy's law too. So Mm -hmm. they were like providing testimony. That was really impressive. I appreciate, I just want to say that I appreciate you just bringing it back to the resilience of the kids because this was like such a traumatic experience and like for these kids it's going to stay oh my God, yes it's going to be with them forever and the fact that they not only like experienced it but also made this documentary were on camera are now obviously being discussed by strangers who don't know their full like life and experience it's just i think that it's it's important to just name it and just recognize that they are they were true like really courageous to even be in this documentary and to share their story. So yeah, I appreciate that. And be so vulnerable because you can see them crying mm-hmm. too, you know, it's a good documentary. Yeah. Okay. Anything else, any yeah. other big pieces that we didn't talk about? I just want to talk about the defense attorney at the end. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How they asked him the question yeah. if he thought that, you know, that Mike was innocent and he's like, it took like a, a period of silence and then he's like, mm, yeah, no, I find that <laughs> hard to buy. And I just, I thank him for that. He because said, I find it hard to buy and yes. hard to sell. <laughs> and, I, and I mentioned this to Sean, out of all the documentaries that we've watched crime related, never have I seen a defense attorney actually be so honest of how he truly yeah. feels, you know? And, I don't know. At first, I was like so mad at him when he did the cross examination. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, don't you see? You know how in pain she is, and you dare ask these questions. But then when he said that, it was like, wow. You know, we don't really know the the trouble that these defense attorneys really have to go through try to defending someone that they may not think is innocent. Yeah. You know, but they still have to sell a story of this person is innocent. You know. Oh. Well, and that that goes to. Uh... <laughs> Now that I know that we actually have more time, because I thought it was a time constraint. Well, also look at you getting a refill and and making fun of me for needing oh. a refill, putting out this, pulling out this handle of Tito's under your desk. Yes, I need a <laughs> refill. I am, I pause this all. We pause this all the time. The refill. That's why I was being serious to say if you need a refill, get a refill. Well, he's the only one who refills. Right. I don't refill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It also didn't seem serious. It seemed like you were shaming me for needing. Boy, go refill. get some more drink because we still got at least fifteen more minutes. I'm okay, but thank you. I appreciate it. Next time, I'll be more prepared and have my handle over here and my club soda over here, just so I can refill here. But I do want to bring that point because it's hard out here for lawyers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it I'm is. Sure. It, yeah. You know, you all a lot of times you all don't understand the the intricacies of what you have to do and particularly for criminal defense. Mm -hmm. I don't do criminal law, right? But for criminal defendants, they have a right to, to counsel. They have a right to present their case. 
They have a right to present their defense. They have a right to have an attorney represent their interests, right? And a many, and oftentimes what people don't realize is that lawyers don't control the show, right? Lawyers can talk about strategy. We can give strategy. It's the clients who run the show. If a client wants to do something, as long as it is ethically appropriate, is legally sound, right, reasonable, then we have to present that. So people fail, forget to understand that. It's not, you know, lawyers is just making up bullshit, whatever, right? Even if you, as a lawyer, your client can go on the stand and, and totally lie, right? As a criminal defense lawyer, you can't stand up and be like, oh, my client is lying, right? There's ethical bounds with all of that. So I say all that because, you know, jurors sometimes give lawyers bad raps and they make decisions because they don't like a certain thing that a lawyer did or this, that, and the third, or people make comments about lawyers, but it's a hard job. I'm not trying to say that woe is us, right? Because we also, some of, some individuals are making good money doing it. And some are shitty lawyers and some are unethical. But, you know, we do have to recognize that the client's rights and expectations are just as important as just the presentation of that from the lawyer. And so we are nothing but a vessel of truth, okay, that we're trying to give to the people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for that, though, because I'm the first one who yeah, sits there and be you like, are horrible at it. This effing <laughs> lawyer. <laughs> But, but she I will did, say. But look, Uberto, she's the first person to be like, I, I, if I'm a juror, you know, I always take every case and I think like I'm a juror. Yes, that's why I would never have your ass on the exactly, jury. Exactly. Like, you will fuck it up. The first Go thing ahead. they tell me, I'm like, guilty. Nope, I can't see nothing past that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard. I don't understand why we have this jury, jury system because mm-hmm. people like me, I would hate somebody to have me in their jury panel because it, he's right. I can't, I, if something, if you tell me something and I immediately think you're guilty, no matter how many proof you show me, you're guilty in my eyes. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. I still get these jury jury notices in the mail. Like, stop, I'm in a podcast. And do you not listen to the podcast where I say that I cannot? <laughs> <laughs> but I will say this, though, going back to what you were saying about the lawyers, though, I do want you to know and I've mentioned this in one other podcast that, you know, you have made influences on Dorian. Like Dorian sees how hard you work and he's now to the, you know, to the point where he had to choose high schools. He didn't have to choose because he could go to his homeschool high school, but he also in the city of Virginia beach, kids entering high school can choose um, high schools based on what the high schools offer. And one of the high schools was offering law. And I was like, Darren, you should really do that because look at Sean. And he's like, eh, nah, I see how hard he works and how much work he has. And eh, I don't want to do that. So <laughs> if it makes a difference, though, although he said he didn't want to do it, he recognizes that you work really hard doing your job. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, he immediately was like, no, he works too hard. He doesn't have time off. <laughs> but I was like, there, you'll be really good at it. <laughs> yeah, he would, actually. Yeah. Yeah, All he right. actually explained to me, because when they were showing about the Judy's Law, they mentioned the senator. But when they actually, mm. when I was Googling it, it said representative. So I had to ask him, and he explained to me that represent the 
representatives right. and the senators are not the same. No. And though he also explained to me that the representative is the one that the people go to if they want a bill to be passed. And so he presents it over. And, you know, so he explained a lot of that to me earlier. So, yeah. And you have more representatives than senators. And you could technically go to the senators too, but most of the time they ain't doing shit. He also, because I thought it was a, a national law, but he explained to me that no, they only passed it in the state of Ohio, yeah. not in the entire U.S. So yeah. I have a very intelligent kid, 14-year-old. Debian is very intelligent. He just doesn't apply himself. Don't be talking about my son like that. He's just lazy. <laughs> By the way, he just left, so he's on his way to you. All right. Yeah, he's just lazy. Okay. <laughs> so that is episode 79, The Fire That Took Her. I want to thank Denise, as always, for participating. Denise, you want to say something to the people? Thank you for having me. And it, Umberto, it's a pleasure to meet you. Hopefully we can do this. Likewise. Often. Yes, I hope I'm invited yes. again. Well, at we'll least see. you got we'll my see. invitation. <laughs> and I'm the co-host. Okay. Oh, today I'm no co-host, but okay. <laughs> I actually, okay. I, I changed it. See, look, hold up. Even for me, I don't have anything. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Oh, nice. All right. So, and I also want to thank Umberto for taking the time to come. This is the second time that you have joined the podcast. First time actually here in the studio area. Now you are virtual because you are out there in Portland. You want to say anything to the people? No, thank you for having me. That's it. Yeah, I hope I can come back. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll just keep an eye out on my inbox, see if I'm invited okay. again. And you, you <laughs> wanted to tell the people, if somebody was very interested in visiting Portland, what would you say? Why should they visit Portland? They should come in the summer because summers are beautiful here. That's it. Because it's a lot more fun than Portlandia makes it seem. Oh my God, you just a hater. <laughs> Denise, have you ever watched Portlandia? Oh my God, it's a great show. You should watch it. It's on AMC. But you've been hey, to Portland. There's there's great food and um, a lot of food options. If you're vegan, there's a lot for you here. Yes. And there's a lot of really good um, rivers and lakes and stuff to explore. So definitely come in the summer. And Is it diverse? Come if you're vegan. It depends on your definition of diverse, but it is very white. Uh, but there's a lot of diversity of all kinds. <laughs> I went to, I, I was always in the downtown area, but I did go to Cannon Beach. Yes, that's pretty. It was, yeah, it was really nice. Yeah, I yeah. had a lot of fun. All right. So for those of you out there looking and listening, you can reach us on Facebook at Peeps Creek Cafe. You can hit us on IG, Twitter, and Twitch at Peeps Creek. YouTube, Peeps Creek podcast and of course on the website that i work diligently on to do the videos and edit the videos and make sure that you have a transcript that scrolls with the video that is all available on the website peepsgreek.com all of the links for everything that's us is cafe at oh that's our email sorry so yeah so if you like you know you really love my voice and it's like oh my god your voice is so awesome you really want to send me you know say that <laughs> cafe at peepsgreek.com if you want to say like denise is annoying cafe at peepsgreek.com if you want to say umberto should not come back 
cafe. I don't know. <laughs> oh my god! Don't I'll open up play. that question. <laughs> I'll just play up there, and then all of the links are at cafe.peachcreek.com backslash links. Oh, and Umberto has volunteered to take over <laughs> to deal with the social Wait, media. Why are you saying that? Don't put it out there. So I can put it on the record. If, but if anything goes wrong, then people know who to blame. Don't do that. That'll so, be just be like low key volunteering. So are you denying that you're volunteering? He didn't say that. Yeah. He did not say that. I just said keep it on the do the low. Nah. Just in case of any errors. That's exactly Nah, because he, he tried said. to put it on he gonna put it on his resume. He'll use it when it's appropriate for his community. I'll use it. I'll use it in my resume if it's successful. I'm not gonna use it in my resume if it doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> That's the whole point of a resume. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So until next time, make sure that you continue to drink, listen, and converse. Peace and love. Bye.